Be seated. Welcome to order. All right. Sheriff, you got anything we need to deal with today? All right. Madam Clerk, do we have any admissions? No admissions. Any other housekeeping before we call the first case? I understand there's one case on the calendar. Thaddeus Moore, Heather Moore. Anybody here representing those parties? Okay, Mr. Strickland, uh, what's going on in that case? Is Ms. Moore here today? Is she going to be here today? No, sir. I called her and she said she Okay, uh, Mr. Strickland, are you prepared? Yes, sir. Are you going to go forward with your client today? Yes, sir. All right, well, we will be probably taking you out of turn. I'm going to listen to this first case, but I want to make sure that you are available and on standby and on call. But uh, I understood she wasn't going to be here, so we'll take you next. Okay. All right. I do need to make one housekeeping announcement. Judge Branch is not with us today. She's uh, not available, but we will be recording this, uh, both video and audio. We'll make the tapes available to Judge Branch, and uh, she'll have the benefit of uh, uh, the oral argument. All right. Let's hear from uh, Case Wayne versus Entradium. Due to him, would be with, with serve to satisfy the interest that came due on the note. 
In October of 2016, Appellant McElwain filed an answer denying liability, asserting various counterclaims and defenses. He alleged that Intradiem and other third parties, including its directors and stockholders, engaged in a conspiracy to force him out of the company through fraud, through self-dealing, through a recapitalization scheme of that company in 2014, and through calling a bogus default under the note. He later formally moved to add these parties under OCGA 911-19 and asserted the claim for accounting and inspection of the records. He then later amended his answer and counterclaim, asserting among other defenses that Intradiem lacked standing to enforce the note, and he attached the email that I mentioned earlier that showed that the note was amended to cash neutral terms. In April of 2017. Council, you, you, you've twice referenced the amendment, yes, but there's sir. a merger clause in the agreement, right? Yes, sir. How do you handle the lack of execution of this supposed amendment? Well, Judge, I, I would, our position is, is that the trial court got it wrong when it said it didn't satisfy the writing requirement. It is a writing requirement. It is. It was sent by an, a representative of Knowledge back to the the borrower under the note, Mr. McElwain, and it amended the note after the note was executed. Was the note executed by email? The note was not executed by. Email. What's your best authority that a written and signed executed document can be with a merger clause can be amended via electronic mail? Our our, our best authority, and we we were we were not able to, to cite any anything from Georgia on that point, and I would I would concede that. But we did cite um, a string of, of cases from other jurisdictions, specifically from the from federal cases from the Middle District of Alabama. We cited the Lesref Barron versus Winfield Properties case where that was held in emails similar to this one, which modify payment method after execution of the contract have been held as sufficient. There's another case called VFM Leonardo versus Ice Portal. That's the South, Southern District of Florida case. Um, and you know, and the, Win, the Winfield case that we cited also is, is instructive. Uh, the court found that email sent subsequently to the execution of that note they constitute written agreements. They modified the note. And I mean, in this day and age, Judge, people modify, people use email to change terms of agreements. It happens all the time. Well, you don't have a Georgia case that says that. We did not cite a Georgia case. And neither would a Georgia attorney advising their client with respect to what modified an agreement. I think that we would advise the client what what authority we have for that position. And that's what we Do you say. think I settled now, or is that still a moving target? I'm, I'm sorry, Judge. Is, do you question? think it's settled that we're going to do electronic business this way, or is the, the goalpost moving? I think it's I think it's a function of the first of all the terms of the of, of whatever agreement is signed itself. But I think that in this day and age, that's it has to be accepted that when parties discuss terms and, and agree, and you've got emails of this caliber where it says confirm, I agree, this is what we're going to do, then that's sufficient, and that they should be held to that. And it's and it's it's curious that they waited. 13 years to sue on this note after after it had been uh, amended on that there's no and that gets into some of my other arguments um, you know he, he was never in default because the the because it was modified it was cash neutral he was fired later on from the company a couple of years later but there's been no discovery there's been nothing done in the case to show how how his bonuses were applied what's the state of your case if if we disagree if we if we do not accept the email correspondence as an amendment, and so the note is as it was originally executed. What does that do for your case? Well, it, it would basically affirm what the trial judge said that the, that the note was never amended, and, the, and but we would still attack that there was that they haven't met the the burden 
of proving uh, that there was anything owed under the note, which is something that we've, we've alleged that that is actually an element of a suit on note in Georgia. What the judge did was the judge said, you're liable, okay? I'm just gonna rule on just liability. We'll, we'll, we'll reserve damages for another day. That sounds routine, right? But if you think about it, if there's zero owed, there can't be liability. You're not liable under something where nothing's owed. And in this case, they, there's been no discovery, there's been no uh, uh, discovery at all as to what portion of the bonus is, how much, if, if at all. I mean, we're talking about a $128,000 note. It's not beyond the pale that the whole thing was satisfied over 13 years through bonuses that were due. And that's our point, is that this needs to go back so that there can be discovery. It was an affirmative defense that was raised that, that there was uh, sat, you know, no default under the note. Uh, and we think that it was premature for the judge to rule as to liability without any allegation uh, as, as, to, as to damages at this point. Um, so that addresses my uh, first couple of points there that were in the brief. Uh, regarding motion for judgment on the pleadings, there's the standing issue, Your Honors, also that's very important. Uh, you know, there's nothing in the record to show, you know, the, the, the appellee here today is intradeem. Uh, the note, the, the party on the note is Knowledgent. They've got it in the caption. There's a moniker in the caption that says, formerly known as Knowledgent. We're submitting to Your Honors that that's not sufficient to show who holds a note. You can't just say formerly known as. You have to explain why. It would have been easy enough for them to go on the Secretary of State's website, pull the name change, if it was a merger, put in the merger certificates, do whatever you need to do to show they, they hold the note. They haven't done any of that. They just put it in the caption, formerly known as, and they've been relying on that this entire case. So we think that the judge got it wrong on the standing issue as well. Uh, moving on to assignment of error three, I think the first two assignments of error were covered in, in that first part. Um, we're arguing that the trial court erred in dismissing Mr. McElwain's counterclaim for inspection and accounting under Delaware law for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. This is probably, I was guessing this might have been the, the more interesting issue for, for the court since it's a matter of, of first impression. Uh, we had to go outside of Georgia to look at cases that we've cited. Uh, and in particular, we're relying on the Anderson versus Children's Corner case, which is cited in page 23 of, the, uh, of our brief, which gets into the legislative legislative history of the statute that's at issue in Delaware, all, they, all the, that our client was seeking to do was just do an accounting of this Delaware company's records. This is a company that filed suit on the note in Georgia, has its headquarters in Alpharetta, you know, did, did, had all of the actions that we're saying were involved in the torts at, at issue in Alpharetta. Um, but the, the so it's, it's fair that this, that the Georgia court should be able to hear a simple action for accounting to see these books and records. Um, the, again, back to the legislative history, if you look at the legislative history, uh, the Connecticut court's decision indicated that the Dela Delaware legislature used ex the exclusive jurisdiction language in the statute simply to clarify that only the court of chancery could hear such claims for actions within the state of Delaware, since the original power to order inspections was split between that court and, and the Delaware Superior Court, which is another one. I view this by analogy similar to our own Georgia Superior Courts, they've got exclusive jurisdiction over matters relating to equitable relief, relating to title to land. And then you go to, you know, if you try to go to the state court for that kind of stuff, you can't. Um, but the Superior Courts of Georgia nevertheless remain general jurisdiction trial courts. That's enshrined in our Constitution in Article 6, Section 4. Uh, so we submit that based on those other, ca other cases, there is a split in authority and we've acknowledged that but based on the Connecticut case, it's more persuasive where you've got a state that's got general jurisdiction courts, they can hear that claim. So we think it was 
error uh, for the for the trial court to deny to grant the motion for judgment on the pleadings uh, and also dismiss the uh, counterclaim for inspection of the county on that, on that basis. With regard to assignment of error four, uh, this this relates to the court's denial of the motion to add parties. We contend that the trial court abused its discretion by denying Mr. McElwain's motion to add parties. The motion sought to add stockholders and directors of Intradiem as counterclaim defendants under OCGA 911-19A1, uh, which provides that parties have to be joined where, in their absence, complete relief can't be afforded to those parties who are already parties. Um, the denial of the motion was an abuse of discretion because there was personal jurisdiction over all of these defendants under OCGA 91091. Now, at least a few of the directors and stockholders, and I think Apelli uh, conceded to this, they were resident in Georgia, so there would be personal jurisdiction over them. The rest of them were alleging they committed torts in Georgia, so therefore there was personal jurisdiction under the jurisdiction statute. Specifically, and as I alluded to earlier, uh, the 2014 recapitalization scheme that's referenced in the counterclaims, that was designed by the board of directors at Intradiem's principal place of business, which is located in Alpharetta. They had numerous meetings and teleconferences regarding that scheme. All material decisions were made there. The vote to approve the scheme was held there. And the documents and agreements regarding that scheme, we allege, were prepared, approved, and signed in Alpharetta. So we think there's enough there to, to show uh, personal jurisdiction. But we're not all the way there yet, because you've got to also show that they're necessary parties. Uh, we believe the court abused its discretion uh, by concluding that the stockholders and directors were not necessary to afford uh, complete relief. Basically, our argument on that is the allegations that are asserted tie the stockholders and directors directly into this litigation. Uh, although Intradiem purported to seek payment on the note, Intradiem's complaint against McElwain was really just an improper attempt to obtain a judicial declaration that canceled his preferred shares. And we contend that that was part of a long and continuing scheme. So for that reason, we think that the trial court got it wrong when they said these parties uh, did not belong in this case. If, if they're not joined, it, you could see duplicity of litigation, multiple suits. Uh, it would be unfair, and you could have inconsistent results. So with that, I will reserve my two minutes of rebuttal time. We ask that you orders be reversed. Thank you. All right, you have two minutes remaining. Good afternoon. May it please the court, my name is Simon Malko. I represent the Appellee Intradium, Inc. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the facts uh, because I think the context in how this case evolved is important. As Mr. Gordon pointed out, this case started as a suit on a note, a one-count suit, Intradium sued Mackle on a note that he signed in 2003. He doesn't dispute that he signed the note, and he doesn't claim that he paid the money back. In response, Mr. McElwain filed counterclaims against Intradeem for, he claims they breached the note as it was modified, and accounting, and inspection. I, I like to put those claims and counterclaims together. I'll call them silo number one or bucket number one. It's claims between the company and Mr. McElwain related to the note and his employment and his inspection. Okay, it's bucket number one. Then he did something else. He filed a motion to add a bunch of third parties, former officers, directors, and shareholders of the company. And he claimed that they've reached their fiduciary duties when in 2014, a decade after the note was signed, 
they approved the stock recapitalization. I think it's important to understand how this came about because those claims, those proposed claims against the third parties, what I'll call bucket number two, is really a separate category of claims. It's different parties. It's McElwain against these outside parties. And it's different causes of action, as, I, as I'll talk about it a little bit more. When was the note signed? The note was signed in 2003. So more than two decades before, or, or roughly a, two, two, uh, or a, a yeah, decade yeah. and a half. I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, Counsel, but I mean, he, he what he's saying is this ongoing and whole relationship is relevant to resolving the dispute. You're saying, well, this was a year after, or 10 years after the note that this happened. You didn't call the note due until more than 10 years That's after. Correct. Absolutely. Um, That's correct. But as I'll get to in a moment, Your Honor, uh, I have authority for the proposition that what they're saying, this conspiracy, isn't enough to prove necessary. So as, as Mr. Gordon pointed out, we have two orders at issue here. The order denying leave to join the third parties, bucket number two, as I call it, and the judgment on the note. I, if it pleases the court, I'd like to start with the joinder issue. There are three key points that I'd like the court to take away from the joinder issue. Uh, number one, the appellant only moved to add under 9-11-19. As the court is probably aware, there are two joinder statutes in Georgia, compulsory under 9-11-19 and permissive under 9-11-20. If you look in the record at page 83, you will see their motion. They only moved under the compulsory joinder statute. That's important because there's a two-pronged test and they have to prove both prongs, which is subject to personal jurisdiction and necessary parties. And they have to prove abuse of discretion. So I, I want to frame the issue. I think that's important that the court bear that in mind. The second point, as I alluded to before, that there is no overlap in the causes of action. I understand the conspiracy point. I'll get to that in a second. But if, if the court takes the time to actually look at the pleadings, you will see counterclaims from Mr. McElwain against Intradeem. And then you will see one substantive counterclaim or he calls it a counterclaim, it's a third party claim, that Mr. McElwain wants to assert against the fiduciaries. And Intradeem's not a party to that proposed claim. So you really do have two separate groups of claims. There's no overlap. There's not a single substantive cause of action where Mr. McElwain has sued both Intradeem, the company, and these supposed third parties. I think that's important when you consider the question of whether you need the third parties to decide the claims against Intradeum, or whether you need Intradeum to decide the claims against the third parties, I think the trial court got it right that we don't need the third parties. All they have to try to tie the two together brings me up my point number three, which is they claim, Mr. Gordon said, there's a conspiratory scheme, that this is all somehow tied together that this was all some scheme by Intradeum to get Mr. McElwain's stuff. Well, we have authority that says that simply alleging a conspiracy or joint tortfeasors doesn't create, doesn't meet the test for necessary parties. Um, as we cited on page 29 of our brief, there's case law, federal case law, but 9-11-19 is patterned after Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 19. If it pleases the court, I'd like to read a quote from Marshall Beaches Nutter which we cite in our brief, the court wrote, it is well settled law that Rule 19 does not require the mandatory joinder of co-conspirators. Indeed, courts at every level, including the Supreme Court of the United States, 
the federal rules of civil procedure themselves, and numerous commentators have recognized that Rule 19 does not mandate joinder of co-conspirators. Their conspiracy allegation is not enough. And this court, in Merritt... What court Walker, is that? I'm sorry? What court was that? That was the District of Maryland, 2011, 816 F sub second 259, citing a series of cases. This court, in uh, Merritt versus Marlin, held that a joint tortfeasor is not a necessary party. That was where they, they said they were joint tortfeasors. So I would submit to your honor, your honors that simply saying this was all part of a conspiracy or a scheme doesn't meet the test under 9-11-19, which is the only statute that they moved on. And Counsel, what about this standing question, the, the question of the, the uh, intradium knowledge and history and, and your, how is that addressed in the plea? Let, let, me, let, me, let me turn to that. Let me turn to the judgment. Um, first, they say that the trial court didn't consider it because they claimed that they put it in an amendment that was filed after the hearing. And respectfully, that is not correct. Um, if, if we have cited in our papers their first amended answer and counterclaims, which was filed the day of the hearing, which asserts lack of standing. So it was filed before, and if the transcript, transcript page 15, at the hearing, they addressed the standing issue. So the court considered it. Here's why I believe the court is correct. They want to paint this as an assignment issue. It's not an assignment issue. It's a name change. What we're alleging is that the note was signed over that the that the it was a note to knowledge and ink and we are we alleged in our complaint that knowledge and ink changed its name to intradeal now had they disputed that fact they might have a leg to stand on with regard to the standing argument but they didn't dispute that fact quite to the contrary in their counterclaim they specifically alleged and i'm going to quote Intradium was formerly known as Knowledge and Inc. End quote. That appears in the record at page 33. That's part of their affirmative claim on their counterclaim. They can't have it both it's ways. Not a, so you're saying it's not a successor and interest question. It's, a, it's literally a name change. It's a name change that they have not only acknowledged, but specifically pled not once, not twice, but three times. Every time they amended, they said Intradium was formerly known as Knowledge. If they hadn't said that, they might have some argument on standing. But having pled that, they can't deny it. Um, talk, speaking of the, the judgment on the note, let me turn now and address this email that Your Honor asked me. And I think the, the question about whether or not an email is sufficient writing for a note to amend it after the fact is an excellent question. But there's another reason why it is this uh, They want to characterize what that email says. And uh, respectfully, I'd invite the court to take a look at that email because that's exactly what the trial court did. And what you will see is the email references, supposedly references, a conversation that happened before the note was signed. It says, talk, confirming the conversation we had as we were finalizing the note, meaning before we signed it. So in my view, it's not even an amendment. It is a pre execution oral understanding that was superseded by the integration clause in the note. And I think the trial court was absolutely right to find that if, if I, it's, it's one thing if I say, we're going to sign a note today, wink, wink, you never have to pay it. 
interest. If I sign the note, uh, I'm bound. There's lots of cases that say you can't rely on a pre-execution agreement. It's something different to say, I've now signed the note and you come to me and you say, wink, wink, you don't have to pay. Uh, that's a horse of a different color. I think what, what, at best, what the email shows is the first one, which is a pre-execution alleged oral agreement. But even if you were to read it, I don't see how you can read it this way, but even if you were to accept their, their interpretation that it was a post-execution agreement, as the trial court correctly found, there was no consideration for it. Um, and so for all those reasons, I think the trial court was absolutely correct in its determination that that note did not create a question of fact as to the liability on uh, as to liability for the note. I also disagree that the trial court is precluded from entering a judgment just as to liability. 91156, granted, which is a summary judgment statute, specifically recognizes that you can enter judgment as to liability only where there's a question as to damages. They want to treat the damage as an essential element, but this is not a tort. This is a breach of contract. And so I disagree, and I don't think they've cited a case for the proposition that them simply saying, well, we don't know how much we owe you, or we're not sure we owe you anything, somehow creates a question of fact that precludes judgment as to liability. They sign the note. They don't deny they never paid us a penny on it. If we can't prove how much they owe us, then we won't get a judgment for anything. But that doesn't keep the trial court, in, in, in my view, from at this point granting judgment as to their liability. On the note, um, as to the inspection counterclaim, it's been briefed. As I, as, as my learned adversary points out, there's a difference of opinion on this. Your honors will take a look at the majority view, the minority view, and decide which way we want to go on that. So I won't spend any time on that. If you don't have any specific questions, I do want to make one more point on on the joinder, um, and then answer any questions that you have. I think it's important to bear in mind this is in the record. They chose this path of trying to join these claims against these third parties. And all the trial court said was, you can't bring those here. It doesn't mean that they can't attempt to pursue those claims. In fact, as is, what's in the record is that there is a case pending in Delaware seeking to adjudicate the validity of those breach of fiduciary duty obligations. So I think it's important to bear in mind that it's simply they chose this procedural path to try to pull all these people in, and they didn't meet their burden of showing that we need them. On that point, counsel, I know it's not your motion. I've got this motion to take judicial notice. Yes. Why does it hurt us to take judicial notice? I mean, I know you're opposing it. My question is, I mean, why, why, why does it hurt your case for us to take notice of your Honor, I apologize. Sometimes, uh, you know, the law gets the better of me. <laughs> I, I think under the rules, I'm not sure that I don't. I don't think that it meets the standards for judicial notice. But as a practical matter, I actually think it. it as as I think I said in in the motion, uh, what it shows is that the Delaware court is going to entertain this issue that they want to assert against these fiduciaries. This is a Delaware corporation. I mean, with all due respect to the courts of Georgia. I would, I would submit that uh, the Delaware Chancery Court's a perfectly good place to determine whether or not there's been a breach of fiduciary duty under Delaware law as to a Delaware corporation. Again, they chose this procedural path 
of trying to pull those third parties into an existing one-count suit on a note. That's that's their strategic decision, but they should be held to 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 meet that burden. And respectfully, I don't think that they came close. Certainly, as to the necessary parties, because all they have is this conspiracy, this allegation that. It's a conspiracy, and as I quoted in that case, and as this court has held, that's not enough. We don't need those third parties to decide the bucket number one, and that's the test. And so I haven't talked about personal jurisdiction because I don't need to. I mean, Your Honor, as Your Honors understand, they have to show not only were they necessary parties, but they were subject to personal jurisdiction. I think the trial court got that right as well, but I'm running out of time, so I've, I've I've hit the points that I wanted to hit. If your honors have questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Otherwise, Ms. Bethel, anything? All right. Thanks so much. You have two minutes remaining. Counsel, a couple of things. I mean, the note speaks for itself, and it's got a merger clause. Yes. I mean, I mean, so, so the notion that we would talk about what other stuff was at, being discussed before, during, or at the time of the note is the note when it's signed. I, I agree. It, help me. I mean, I'm, I'm not. What, what my argument is, Judge, is that this word "additionally" to me shows that there's at least an argument that this email added an additional term to the note after the note was signed. This, this email was sent after the note was signed. So if we're saying, okay, this note was signed, additionally, here's another term, then he comes back and says, consider this confirmed, we're going to agree to that. So my point is, is that there is at least an argument, a colorable argument, that this amended the note. And that for that reason, the trial court got it. And this is, this is from the same person? This is from our, my client, the appellate, and it's going to uh, a representative of uh, the, the original note holder, who, who, who uh, knowledge that we've alleged they, they were representative of knowledge. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's addressed. I, I'm out of time, Your Honor. Obviously, 
If the court has any other questions, I'm happy to May I ask one more? Uh, I believe Judge Bethel's got one more question. <laughs> Counsel, I, I just want to follow up on the issue. Yes, sir. Tell me why us taking judicial notice matters. I mean, I've, I've looked at that issue. Why, why, does it, why do we need that? To, to, to do the, 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 what either one of you want us to do. The, the reason why we filed those, those documents from the Delaware court was to show he, opposing counsel has argued here that the Delaware court is taking up the issues of breaches of fiduciary duty and those other things. Those materials conclusively show that my client's not a party to that action. The directors and officers that we're trying to add to this lawsuit are not parties to that action. That action was filed under another statute that the judge in the chancery court up there said, "This I can't hear this under this statute. You've got to amend your petition. They then amended the petition. It's just a unilateral action that doesn't name any other parties. It would have no binding authority on anybody. Uh, it may provide some kind of a unilateral conclusivity for corporate law in Delaware. But we're, our point is we need those defendants in here. This is an Alpharetta-based company. Even though it's a Delaware corporation, a lot of these decisions happen there. As Your Honor alluded to before, all of these issues are kind of inter are intertwined in our argument that there was a reason why there was a delay. So, I, I think I'm really out of time. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much. Thank